Good morning. Especially good to see you, Dale and Susie. Thank you for your, uh, your warm affection for this congregation. Thank you for sharing with us. And cool hat, by the way. In Japan, they do Valentine's Day right. Um, they call it White Day. And on White Day, uh, a young uh, gives flowers and whatnot, or chocolates or what have you, uh, to a significant other. And then waits on Black Day. And on Black Day, the roles are reversed. And uh, women have to uh, do something nice for their man. We don't have that tradition here. But maybe we should. Just, I mean, Aaron, you know, March, March 14th, just think about it. That said, I know that um, Valentine's Day is, in, it's interesting because it, 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 capsul- it encapsulates, it captures our culture's obsession uh, with romantic love to the exclusion of all other loves. Um, it's, it's fascinating that even, even in our, our you know, most non-romantic films, uh, there's always a love story, isn't there? It's bizarre. It's, uh, you know, Bruce Willis is trying to stop a bunch of terrorists for t- from taking over Nakatomi Tower, and in the middle of it, he has this heart-to-heart with his estranged wife. And you're thinking, wow, what a powerful force, and how much we idolize it in our culture, so that it becomes, you know, the focus, the, the, the center, the, um, the idol uh, that we worship. Today's sermon is called uh, A More Excellent Way. It was originally called Dr. Bennett Knows How to Love uh, because that was what Neil put on the printing schedule uh, back <laughs> in December to let me know that I was doing the Valentine's Day sermon. Because I, I wouldn't have known. If, if it had just said February 14th, I'd been like, oh, okay, cool. What are we talking about that day? So he gave me a subtle hint that that was actually Valentine's Day. Thanks for the heads up. I'm prepared for all that. Uh, the sermon's called A More Excellent Way. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you might hear that echo and you might think of the very end of 1 Corinthians 12 and the very beginning of the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, it's, it's given at many weddings. It's a very popular text in the culture. Love is patient, kind. Uh, it's a description of all the things that we think about love. And Right before that, in the context in, in Corinth, in the church in Corinth, they're having all these fights and these concerns about who's got what gift and who's the best at this and who's the best at that. And Paul is sick and tired of hearing one person above another and, and oh, this other person. And he says, look, it's great to desire this. That's fantastic. But I want to show you a more excellent way of doing life together as a church. And then he goes on to wax poetic about love. What's so interesting about that text, if you're following um, in Acts and you kind of follow the timeline of Paul's journeys and the way that he's moving around the ancient Near East, you know that he comes to Corinth relatively late in his missionary journeys and he stays there for a pretty long time and it doesn't seem to work because as soon as he leaves they go crazy and do all kinds of nonsense stuff while he's gone and so he has to send a letter back to them, multiple letters, to tell them, hey, you guys are awful, turn it around. Interestingly, Before that's happened, on his uh, second missionary journey, Paul um, founded two churches, one in Thessalonica and one in Philippi in the ancient Near East. And if you look at his letters and you read between the lines, you find he had a very special, exciting relationship, 
a powerful relationship with the churches at Thessalonica and Philippi. There was something about his relationship with them that was really, really special. And so I think, I think that he's, he's in Corinth and he's having a tough time with these people. And I think what's going on behind the scenes is he's having reminiscence. He's looking back almost sentimentally to churches that did it right. Churches that received the gospel and in their midst there, there came up, upsurged a kind of genuine mutual affection, a mutual love that surpassed anything he may have ever experienced with other people, and set the standard by which Christian love is measured. And I want to even suggest to you that when you, in the future, when you read 1 Corinthians 13, and you're hearing about a more excellent way, excellent way, what he's describing is the life he lived in Thessalonica. And in, t- in today's text, we're going to hear Paul talk about that life. And I think what we're going to hear him say is this is what love is. This is the thing that your culture is so obsessed with and misses so entirely. Let's read the text from 1 Thessalonians 2. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. For laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God, and you are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and justly and, be- and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This, friends, is what love is. And it really is a more excellent way. I'd like to uh, just go through the text one more time out a few things that you may not have noticed on the surface, maybe explain a little bit about the the New King James translation and and, and some some idiosyncrasies there, and then hopefully we'll be able to get a little bit deeper into what Paul's talking about, and then then I think we'll be set, we'll be uh, ready to kind of give a description of what it is that Paul thinks love is. So let's uh, let's start back, verse 7. But we were gentle among you. We, that's interesting. Um, Sometimes Paul says we, sometimes Paul says I. In this case, beginning of, of 1 Thessalonians, we know that this letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. It's three guys. Three guys, they formed a kind of missionary band, and they went throughout the ancient Near East, and they, and they went, and they, and they, they preached the word, and they started churches. They, they uh, really set the standard for what Christianity would be. And so when we say we, it, Paul's not just talking on his own behalf here. This is not something that Paul personally experienced. He did personally experience, but not individually. It was something that happened with a group, in a part, uh, in and we'll see in a second here, in a family. The next uh, thing I've highlighted up there, gentle. Uh, gentle. This is actually interesting. The uh, New King James translates as gentle. Most modern translations do. But it, we, have a, we have good reason to suspect that really this, this word is actually, um, we were innocent children. Uh, the words are very close in Greek. And um, some of our texts say uh, gentle. Some of our texts say innocent children. Our best uh, texts actually say innocent children. But we most translations change it because it just seems weird. Because if you read this, this, uh, this 
the sense, it wouldn't make sense, right? We were innocent children among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. That sounds a little bit strange. Uh, a, a change of metaphors. Uh, a, we, were, we were children and like a nursing mother. It's very, very strange. I think, though, that there's a reason maybe, I, I, I tend to think that, that Paul was actually saying we were innocent children among you, because I think what he was suggesting is that he was, he was just himself with them. Uh, any of you who've ever seen a child know that children are categorically imp- uh, incapable of pretending to be what they're not up to a certain age, and then they start to figure out how to lie. Um, my kids are getting close. Uh, Alice is, is now, when, when Olivia screams, Alice is like, it was an accident. So, uh, <laughs> learn from the best. Way to go, girl. Uh, but but at, at, a, at a younger age, um, children are, are incredibly um, open and innocent. And, and you might even know people in your own life who have, have taken this into adulthood, where they're just not duplicitous. They're just themselves. Paul is, is, is telling the Thessalonians, that's how we were. And there's a reason he's doing this. There's a reason he wants them to know this. You see, after he left, um, a whole bunch of other people came in after him and claimed to be t- uh, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they said, oh, Paul, Paul? Oh, yeah, that guy, he's a liar. Don't worry about him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And Paul wants to emphasize to the Thessalonians, that's not the case. You know me. You know how transparent I was. You know how real I was with you. And so he says, I was real with you, and the real me, the person I honestly want to be, is a nursing mother who cherishes her child. In, in a second, and you might remember our first read through, Paul also is going to call himself their father. He's, he's their child, he's their mother, he's their father. How strange, how strange that, that Paul uh, jumps through all these metaphors. What do they all have in common? They have the common, commonality of being family. These are all characteristics of a family. Paul can't think about the church that he left so long ago without thinking of it in terms of family. That should be interesting to us. About this, this is interesting. In pop culture, most of the time in a movie, uh, what's, what's interesting is the movie is never about um, being in a family. It's sort of like how the family got started, right? You know, it's, oh, when, what's her name, first saw him, they couldn't stand each other. How could they possibly ever end up together when Harry met Sally? Oh, I'll tell you this long story about how they finally ended up together, and that's when the family starts. That, because that's what our culture likes. We like that, that excitement, that, that, that passion, that newness, that freshness. What Paul's talking about is in the middle of the road, in the middle of life. When the church does family together with all the kinks and all the confusions and all the, the stresses and the tensions, that's what, he, that's what he remembers so sweetly. And then he goes on, he says, I affectionately longed for you. Some translations will say, I cared so deeply for you. We cared so deeply for you. Or uh, even, we loved you so much. You notice for a love sermon, there's a lack of the word love in this text. And yet, affectionately longing is maybe best captured in contemporary English by, I loved you so much. It's that sense that you have when you think back, uh, for me, to my junior year of college. It was a great year. Um, 
I was, the, I was a hall counselor. I was, I was a junior, and, and I was a hall counselor freshman. So I had just a whole legion of young 17 and 18, 19-year-olds who just thought I was amazing. And they, they bought everything I said. Seriously, I would just wax philosophical and be like, well, I think this, 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 and this, and they just ate it up. They, they, they were young and dumb enough to think that I knew what I was talking about. And I seemed to have it together. And so we had this incredible relationship where they thought I was amazing, and I agreed with them. And we all, and we all thought that was awesome. And I look back at that time. It's getting farther and farther in the past, and so it gets better and better as the years go by. I, I look back at that time. I'm like, wow, it was so sweet. It was so good to be with them. I joke a bit about um, you know, them thinking I'm great and all that, but I'm not joking about that sense that every single one of us has. When we think back to a time in the past, remember, Paul's, you know, this, he's looking back to his time in Thessalonica. We look back to a time in the past when everything was in sync. Everything was right. Our relations were correct. Uh, you were known and you knew. You were accepted fully. And everything worked. And in a context like that, it's only natural for you to be pleased to impart not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives that we're to share. Pleased to share not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. You had been dear to us. The idea of sharing in the ancient Near East is very different than our idea of sharing our lives. I should say sharing our lives. When we say I share, I'm sharing my life with you, what we're talking about is I'm sharing what's going on in my life with you. Right? If I said, oh, Aaron and I, we were just sharing what's going on in our lives last night. What that means is we were sort of catching up on the week. Right? Oh, well, Aaron's having this thing at work, and, and I'm studying this thing, and our kids are doing this. That's what we mean when we say share our lives. That is not what's meant in the ancient Near East by share your life. Share your life means a complete and total sharing. It includes things like spirituality. It includes things like your economics, you know, your, your money. It includes things like the stuff you've got and the place you live. It's, it's communal in the, in the deepest and fullest sense of the word. And so Paul's looking back and he says, when I was with you guys, it felt so right being with you that it was just natural for us to have everything in common. I just, I just wanted to give everything I had to give to you. And the first thing I gave you was the gospel. Because you needed to hear it. You needed to know the, the Lord Jesus. You needed to know your Savior. And then after you knew that, you needed to know me. And you needed to know everything that I had. You needed to share in it with me. Why? Because you'd become dear. You were close. Verse 9, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring day and night, night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. Paul, when he would go to a town, the first thing he would do is, depending, sometimes he would go to the synagogue, depending if there was worship there or not. If there was, great. If not, he went to the marketplace. He went to the mall. You've seen these people at the mall. They have a kiosk. And, they, every t- and when you're walking by, and you like avert your eyes. And they're like, how's your cell phone? And you're like, oh, it's great. Please, please don't leave me alone. You know, oh, do you have hair extensions? We've got those. Um, that was Paul. Paul. He set up in the middle of Mission Viejo Mall, and uh, as people were walking by, like, "Hey, how's your how's your shoes? Uh, how's you have you have a place to sleep? In tent? If you're gonna go camping, I can help you out." Uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy, when they went to town, they set up a cobbler shop. Um, you may have heard uh, tent maker. Well, tent maker is is a loose translation. Really, it meant that that Paul was a cobbler. He could deal with leather, um, any any kind of 
for work. He, was, uh, he worked with his hands. And so what he would do is he would go into town, he'd go into Mission Viejo Mall, and he'd start hawking his wares. He'd be like, hey, I, I can fix those heels for you. Oh, I can take care of um, you know, that thing that you've got. And then people would come like, oh, really? I haven't seen you here before. And he'd be like, by the way, while I'm working on your shoes, have you met my friend Jesus Christ? Yeah, that's how he did it. Have you heard about, if the person was a God-fearer, a God-fearing Gentile or a Jew, he'd be like, have you heard the Messiah has come? Do you know that he was crucified and he lives? And as you were waiting for your shoe to get repaired, you would find out the truth about God. But then Paul's business got really, really busy because he would be in this situation and he would be uh, doing all these all this cobbler work and then all these people would begin to believe the message and they would begin to want to hang out with him. And they'd say, hey, Paul, after work, can you come and tell us more about this thing? And, and he, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they kind of worked together as a team probably, they would go and they would do this. A church would be born. But Paul's still making shoes. He's still making tents. He's still doing all that work as a, as a tradesman. When Paul got to Thessalonica, there was very likely, very likely, this happened very often, somebody in the church who said, hey, could you stop doing all that leather work? Because we would like to hear more about the gospel of God. And sometimes Paul would say okay to this, and sometimes no. In Thessalonica, for whatever reason, he labored day and night that he would not be a burden. He sensed something about these people where he wanted to share his life with them. He didn't want to just take, he wanted to give He wanted to say, hey, I made a little extra this week. This will help out with the brothers and sisters. He didn't want to be a financial burden to anyone. Now, this was a big deal because in the ancient Near East, um, it was very common for people to come to the marketplace, to synagogues, any public square, and begin talking about whatever they knew real well. They were called itinerant philosophers. Philosopher in the grandest term that uh, grandest meaning of that term, or the broadest meaning of that term. They would go and they would talk about stuff and you'd get interested and you'd want to hang out with them and so a rich person in the town would put them up to stay for weeks, months, sometimes years on end to talk about the things. They were very, they were lively raconteurs, we would say. They, uh, at the dinner table, they were a lot of fun to have around. Um, I like to think of myself this way. Um, if you, here's the, I, I have standards though. Um, if, if you really want to, you know, in, increase the, the joy of your dinner party, it's just make sure you're serving. That's all I'm saying. Uh, the itinerant philosophers were dependent, and they got paid by the people they stayed with to share the gospel of God or whatever. Paul didn't want to be that. He wanted to share his life with the people in Thessalonica. Oh, by the way, that's on your note sheets. Paul, Silas, and Timothy worked as cobblers or tent makers in order to distinguish themselves from itinerant philosophers. That's uh, itinerant, I-T-I-N-E-R-A-N-T, itinerant philosophers. It means they walked around. The kind of thing you do with people that you love, you don't just take, you give back. And then Paul says, you are witnesses and God also. How devoutly and justly and, ba- and blamelessly we behaved ourselves. We were absolutely above reproach. You've heard that term. No one could question our conduct. And you know, you remember, really you know, means you remember, you remember, remember this. How we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you 
as a father does his own children. In the ancient Near East, as in our own time, a father's job is not just to, I don't know, play baseball. or what? Well, I guess my job is to be a very pretty princess from time to time with my kids. Uh, but whatever your job as a father is, it includes something like moral training, bringing you up however you can. And, and this, this, this list that Paul gives, exhorted, comforted, uh, charged, it really, it, it's like, no matter what it takes, any tactic, I'll do it to make sure that you get from here to there. And if you think about that in terms of uh, people that you're um, coaching or, 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 or charging, or as a father, if you're thinking about that with your children, you don't care what the tactic is. You don't care. Because your eye is on the prize. You want them to end up there. And if that means encouraging them, or comforting, encouraging, then you encourage. If that means, hey, you can do better, that means, hey, you can do better. If that means, get in gear, then that means get in gear. But whatever it takes is a tactic. Whatever it takes to get them there. That's what a father does, ought to do for his own children, a coach for his team. And, and that's what I did, we did for you, Thessalonica. And we did this, why? That you would walk worthy of God. That you would live lives worthy of God who invites you into his kingdom and glory. There's a goal here. And the goal with your friends are to become better friends. Your goal with your kids is for them to become responsible adults. Your goal with a lot of different things is a lot of different things. But Paul's goal with the people in the church of Thessalonica was that they would be ready, ready to put on their long white robes. You're being invited into the kingdom of God and the glory of the God of the universe. What, what's it going to take for you to be ready to step into that? That's what I want you to see. That's who I want you to be. This, friends, is what love is. How can we explain it? Traditionally, in philosophy and theology, there are five loves. If you've read, oh, this is patterned loosely on C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves. If you've read that, you know how awesome it is. If you haven't, you should. It's very short, but it's uh, incredibly wise. Um, but there are five traditional loves. They are storge, philia, eros, autia, and agape. Those are Greek terms, um, and we'll go through each one quickly. And then in each time, we're going to look and say, is this really what Paul was to the people and the church of Thessalonica? These come from Aristotle. They're filtered through the Christian tradition. And now in the post-Christian tradition, it's very interesting. If you ask a psychologist who's academically trained nowadays, they're going to come up with a list very similar to this. <laughs> and uh, and they, what, they, what they'll have done is they'll take in some of the Christian uh, ways that we've that the, that our, the church has, has altered and shaped these ideas, and they'll try and take God out of them and then give them to you, which is a very strange thing that our culture does, but it is. Which of these is Pauline? Storge, Philia, Eros, Philautia, or Agape? Storge, the first. This is your crazy uncle. Uh, this is the love that you have for crazy Uncle Stephen. That's my crazy uncle. Uh, he's very, very shy with most people. But uh, with those of us in his family, he, he opens up. He's very lively. He's fun. He's also um, a little bit backwards, and a lot of what he says is very offensive. You may have a, or you may have Scott in your congregation, which is very similar. Uh, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Where you're like, you're like, oh, Scott. And, and this is the thing. This is interesting. This is a love. It's an affection or kind regard. Um, you can write that down if you like. Affection or kind regard. But it's the, the affection and kind regard that's developed amongst people who are thrown together through no choice of their own. 
right? Like, I didn't choose to be here at Coast Bible Church with Scott. I certainly did not choose to be my uncle's nephew. But we kind of, that's just how it happened. Uh, and yet, and yet, over time, over time, you develop this kind of, you kind of start to appreciate these people, uh, as wacky as they can sometimes be. And, it, and you're not exactly sure why it is. It's kind of mysterious almost. Uh, you, you look at it, and if you're looking at it from like a checkoff, like these are the things that I want in a friend or somebody that I care about, they're not filling up a lot of the boxes. And yet, you seem to like them anyway. That's storge. That's affection. Kind regard. Uh, I remember I was talking to Kevin Reed, dearly beloved Kevin Reed, who's gone now. And once he was talking about um, one of the things he loved about the church. And he said, you know, if I were left to myself, I probably would never leave my house. True. But what I've found is that by being at Coast Bible Church, I've been forced to rub elbows with people I never, never would have chosen to be with. And what I've found is that they've become very dear to me. He named some names, which I won't. Uh, but I was like, that's, that's amazing. That's true. We, we kind of here in this church have been thrown together, and yet we find an affection for each other. Um, the love of those thrown together, it's born out of ch- chance or spontaneity. It just sort of happens. And so we wonder, is this storge, is that what Paul and the Th- Thessalonians are? And you, you of course, can, you're, you're, you know, uh, we're going to say yes, but, but, but more than that, that's not quite it. I mean, on the one hand, yes, there's affectionate longing, there's the dear to us, uh, there's the fact that there's chance meeting in the marketplace that sort of started the church. Um, and so there's a lot of the elements of this kind of love, but it's more than that, right? I mean, Paul's talking about things like being in the kingdom of God. He's talking about being a father with children. He's talking about working and, and being burdened, for, uh, making sure he's not a burden to them. There's more than just storge. The next philia. Philia, uh, where we get Philadelphia, brotherly love. Brotherly love is a little bit... Um, it's a little, uh, a little bit misleading. It's, it's maybe better would be comrade love because it's not really the love between siblings. Love between siblings in the ancient world and, and, when, we're cast, and when we're categorizing loves is really more like storge. But the love that's developed between troops or, or, or people in combat or people who are on the same sports team in our current context, people who work in the same company, this is philia. It's the love of those who choose to pursue the same ends. Those who choose to pursue the same ends choose this sport or they choose this thing because they have a deep mutual love for something out there, some end, some goal, and they pursue it together. And as that happens, they learn to love one another. And any of you on a sports team know this. Any of you who have done anything as a team know this. It's fascinating how um, in, in our present culture, so many of our sitcoms and TV shows involve the, the, the relationships that develop between people at work. Um, how we're all in this together, in the office together, and somehow, because we all have this, this time that we're spending together uh, trying to achieve the same ends, more or less, we, we develop these bonds. That's philia. Philia is born of careful selection. Just because you're in the office or on the team with somebody doesn't mean that you're going to love them. You choose those who share the same goals and values. And it demands time-tested commitment. Both must remain committed to the goal or the partnership will break up. Paul and Thessalonians, yeah, kind of, right? I mean, in, in some sense, they're both on the, this goal to be worthy 
of the calling of, of, of God. Um, they share common values, their faith. It seems that their relationship is time-tested, but we noticed earlier that they're like family. It's not a choice for them to be thrown in together this way. It, it, it's something different. So it's similar, but not quite the same. The five Eros. Eros being in love, the uh, national idol of the United States of America, and really the West at this point, because we export our values everywhere. Uh, I mean, boy, who doesn't love being in love? There are actually some people who don't love it, and, and there's a reason for that. Some people very much like to be in control. And Eros takes you out of control. It's the love of those who experience romantic ch- uh, attraction. It's born out of chance, and uh, like Storge, like affection, it's, so, it's sometimes very surprising when two people experience this. People you never would have expected to at first find something in the other that they just need to be together. If you've ever been in love, you know that you felt it first, and then you figured out why later. Um, that's a very interesting thing about love, uh, this kind of love, eros, is that uh, it's difficult. You, you have this selection list of, this is what I'm looking for in a mate. Um, but there's something indefinable that attracts people, and only afterwards do you realize that they filled out all those things that you thought were so important. It's the shortest lasting and the most passionate. It's also the most likely to be rekindled when it's faded. It's deeply emotive. It's in the gut. And in some ways, Paul's relationship with the Thessalonians is similar to this. There is a kind of attraction that developed such that they're dear to him, such that he's willing to work so hard for them. As those of you who've experienced errors know, you're willing to do almost anything for the beloved and, and for a time, <laughs> after a while, that starts to fade a little bit and you have to rekindle it. But of course, it's definitely not Eros that Paul feels for the Thessalonians because Paul wasn't married. All right. Uh, Philautia, the, the five loves. Philautia, this is um, proper self-love. Uh, C.S. Lewis doesn't deal with this one in his, in his text because um, it wasn't on his radar, but it's very much on our radar because it is also one of our national uh, pastimes. I don't know if you've done this, where you look in your room and you have like a whole bunch of certificates and tr- from when you were a child, um, and all of them say champion, and, you, and you're thinking back and you're like, I don't remember winning that much. Uh, how did I become the champion of everything? Th- this is the, the, the culture of participation rewards. Uh, you, you've, you're great. You're amazing. I love you. Uh, and, and you're worthwhile. Uh, that's something that our culture really, really, really internalized, really, really, really values. And so we... Uh, we kind of maybe go overboard a little bit. But there is such a thing as, as proper self-love. It's the love of those who honestly assess yet still value themselves. They honestly assess and yet still value themselves. Interestingly, self-love, proper self-love, comes not from something internal. It's a learned behavior. Um, proper self-love comes from imitating those who've loved you, almost always in your family of origin. Um, your mother and father, if... Um, they loved you well, you tend to internalize a proper sense of self-love. If they've thought that you were too great, you might go overboard that way. And if they treated you poorly uh, and, did, and withheld love, then you might go the other way. But typically speaking, um, people who come from a, a good, uh, loving family imitate that and learn to love themselves well. Uh, it changes over time with one's concept of the good or the best. 
Your self-love depends on your ability to see yourself as basically pursuing the good. Um, obviously, Paul and the Thessalonians aren't involved in philautia because it's not self, self-directed. Um, but there is an interesting thing to note. Paul says that he's well-pleased to share not only the gospel of God, but his, his own life. He's well-pleased. He recognizes that there's something about this form, this pattern of life he's going to live with the Thessalonians that's, that's good for him, too. It's right. It's healthy. It's not just him giving, giving, giving. It's him knowing that in this, in this activity with these people, he, too, is full, most fully himself, the way that God meant him to be. Uh, recently, I was at a retreat, and they, they gave this... Um, this example of what, how important self-love is. They say, if you're on the airplane and oxygen masks drop, your natural inclination is to put the oxygen mask on the person that you care about, then you're self-second. And they say, and the people who do that end up dead because you pass out while you're trying. Trust me, I mean, especially if you have swarmy people that you care about, like you're like, like sit down. And while you're doing that, you run out of oxygen and you pass out. If you don't have that right kind of self-regard, self-care, then um, you don't have much to give. And Paul seems to. And lastly, agape. And this is it. This is the one. Altruistic, self-sacrificial love. It's the love of those who seek the good of the other without regard to personal cost. It's born of careful deliberation. It's sustained with constant You may have heard sermons about agape love. You may have thought about agape love um, it, it, most of the time in our movies now, uh, in pop culture, when uh, our heroes are, are they're agape heroes. If you've watched Batman, you know that Batman is a practitioner of agape love. Batman um, recognizes that the city of Gotham is going to be destroyed if he doesn't stop the Joker and Bane and Scarecrow and all the other crazy people. The interesting thing about Batman is that he doesn't have any connection, any personal, effective connection with anybody in Gotham. His love of Gotham is rational. It's disinterested. It's real. It's powerful. It impels him to do amazing things. But it's not gauging his heart towards individual people. Batman sees them as an idea, an idea that he loves, and he passionately pursues it, but he doesn't know the people he's saving. This is agape love. It's totally altruistic. It's self-sacrificial giving. Batman goes to the brink. He's often almost dead because of what he's doing to people. He doesn't know them, and he doesn't care about them as individuals. He spends his nights in Bruce Wayne far, far away. From the common man. Batman believes what he's doing is going to transform their lives, but he's not going to be involved in their lives to see it. That's agape love. This is commonly misconstrued as Christian love, but it's not Christian love. It's purely personal. It requires no affection. It does include a sense of transformation for the good of the 
no deep pathos. There's no spontaneity. In fact, it's not human enough. We'll get back to that in a second. Have you noticed, uh, there are many people um, who think right now, uh, in the secular culture at large, that probably the ideal of human love is something like Buddhism or the Dalai Lama. Seen the Dalai Lama, you know that he seems like a very peaceful, happy sort. And he seems very interested in people being good and well off. But you may also notice that he lacks emotion. That there's something not cold, but detached. Which, incidentally, is one of the tenets of Buddhism. And in the ancient world, one of the tenets of agape. That your heart never quite gets engaged. For those of you who know that agape is used almost exclusively in the New Testament to describe the love that God has for the world, that describes the love that Paul has for the church, I want to suggest to you that agape is being used because it's the closest thing in the language that gets at what Christian love is. Christian love is the perfect love. It is the love of God in Christ. It is described in the word hesed, hesed, in the Old Testament. Time and again, you will see in your English translations, fast love, mercy, commitment. It is the love of a God who will never give up on you. It is the love of a God who has chosen you and yet was surprised when you were there. It is the love of a God who saw you, and the first time he saw you, he always knew he was going to see you, and still the first time he saw you, he was in love with you. It is the love of God for the people Israel. It is the love of God for us, his church. It is gracious, affectionate, and unreservedly committed And when I say committed, I don't mean he doesn't stop, although I mean that as well. I mean that it's all in committed. The kind of love that you pour your heart out into and you give and give and give because you desire, affectionately desire, good things. I I, I noted there, born out of chance and choice. God chose Israel. God always knew from eternity he would choose Israel. And yet there are times in the Old Testament where the poetry is magnificent, where God uh, once describes himself as as walking along a road and looking to the side and seeing a, a, a baby that had been exposed to die. And God looks at that baby and says, I love you. I took you in. I reared you. I clothed you. There's elements of storge, eros, philia, agape. Like philia, it's aimed at a goal. God's commitment doesn't leave you, you. It transforms you. It's sustained by God over time with constancy, perseverance, and self-sacrificial grace. And ultimately, it's an overflow of God's own self-love in the Trinity. In the triune nature of God, the Father gives himself to the Son, who in the power of the Spirit glorifies the Father. 
In this perfect trinity of self-love, God's graciousness and goodness overflow, spill over into creation, onto us, limitlessly, effectively, and powerfully. This is the love that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It is the love by which, in Philippians we know, that Jesus did not consider it robbery, something to be grasped, to be equal with God, but instead emptied himself for us. This hesed is the source and summation of the other five loves. It is what our eros, our philia, it's all drawn from hesed and it all returns to hesed. It aims us at the God who loved us first and pulls us to him. And now let's read 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 to 12 again. But we were children among them. And just as a, merc- a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were p- well pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become so dear to us. For don't you remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil, hammering day and night, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel, the good news of God. God is my witness, and you too, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we were before you who believe. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and encouraged and charged and moved every single one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The unfortunate thing about this sermon is it's uh, one of those ones where you're preaching to the choir. Um, I remember when Althea Eaton took me aside when I was 20, 19. I was back from college and I had long hair and an earring and she said, I pray for you every day. You know, Althea, she's from the South, so she has that bless your heart kind of vibe to it, where it's kind of like, I'm praying for you. Get it together. I remember um, being welcomed into your homes. I remember being cared for you, or cared by you, cared for by you. I cannot tell you how much your love has transformed me. And I pray that my love transforms you. I pray that we are all, every single one of us, willing to share our lives with each other in the fullest sense of that, where we live and we love and we read and we eat and we play together. And every bit of it, every bit of it moves us, changes us, so that we are ready for the invitation to be called into God and his kingdom and his glory. Coast Bible Church, you have a committed, engaged, powerful love. It is faithful. It is steadfast. It is time-tested. And you are transforming each other into the disciples of Christ who will inherit the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your hesed love, your perfect love. 
You're faithfully committed, never giving up, deep, strong, wide, broad, affectionate, transforming love. God, by your spirit on this Valentine's Day, purge us of the lies of our culture about what love is and fill us up with the love that you have set by your spirit in this place. May we go out well-pleased to share our lives with each other and with the world. In your son's name we pray, amen.